Um, there's no greeting. There's no writer named. There are no recipients named, for that matter. He just kind of jumps into it. There's no evident structure of 1 John that you could readily outline. And for that reason, some people have suggested it's less like a letter and more like a sermon. Because if you've ever tried to outline one of my sermons, you know there's no, no evident structure there either. So um, it might be a sermon that traveled around from, from churches. We'll, we'll refer to it as a letter. But even without all that standard, typical letter kind of information, scholars have gleaned for us some really helpful background information as we study this, this book together. Um, first of all, the most likely author of the letter called 1 John is, shocker, John. Um, John is, uh, he, he's the fellow who likely wrote the Gospel of John. And he referred to himself there as the beloved disciple. He's one of the 12 disciples of, of Jesus. And based on similarities of language and ideas and such, likely it's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John who wrote these series of letters we'll be looking at, 1st through 3rd John. Um, 1st John is written towards the end of the first century. So if John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, he's really old at this point in his life, and um, it's written to believers, likely a, um, a band of maybe house churches somewhere in Asia, and it contains some, some, probably some of your favorite verses in the Bible may come from the book of First John. Listen to some of the highlight verses out of First John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2 says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 3 starts this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 16 of the third chapter, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Chapter four continues that theme. By this we know love, or excuse me, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. And I write these things to you, chapter 5 says, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So all these favorite verses are crammed into this little letter of 1 John and they are all in jeopardy in John's mind because these churches were facing substantial spiritual opposition by a number of false teachers who used to be part of their church family but had left the churches and were teaching, as we'll see, some troubling things about Jesus. And you can piece some of those things together as John addresses them when he writes. For instance, if you look at chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the 
father also. So some were denying that Jesus was the Christ. Professor Constantine Campbell puts it this way. He says, the identifying mark of these false teachers and presumably the reason for their departure from the church is that they denied that Jesus is the Messiah. He says they were, they were apostates who had once confessed that Jesus was the Messiah but later reneged on their confession and left the community. And so these teachers are denying that Jesus was the Christ and as we'll see, um, some were even denying that he even came, truly came in the flesh. And John calls them antichrist. He uses that strong of language. Now, perhaps this is why there's no traditional greeting at the beginning of this book. It's, it's like he's just rolling up his sleeves and getting after it, right? He, um, he's writing with urgency and intensity because of the threats to the church that he loves from these who were teaching wrongful things about Jesus. So he just dives right in, as we'll see today in these first handful of verses we'll look at. But before we dive in, I'd like just to... Help us think about what our approach needs to be when we come here to hear the book of 1 John taught to us. Let me challenge you. Come expectantly, expecting that you are going to hear God speak to you through the teaching of his words about what it means for you to know and love and follow and fellowship with Jesus. God is going to speak to you Um, because surely you have better things to do on a Sunday morning than listen to me for 40 minutes. I mean, you could stay home in your pajamas and listen to Jim Gaffigan and Brian Regan, okay, and have a lot more fun than you're going to have here listening to me unless, unless God truly speaks to his people when they gather through the teaching of his word. And that's our, that's our hope uh, this morning. That's our hope each morning. And that needs to be our expectancy when we come. We're not doing this just because we're supposed to or because we have to, but because we believe that God speaks to us, his people, through his word when we gather. So towards that end, you can open your Bibles to 1 John, and I'll pray for our time there. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, um, that we, we don't listen well, we're forgetful, we're distracted. We're creatures of habit. Some of us are here because this is, is what we do. And yet, there's this very real hope held out to us that you love us and that your spirit takes your word and makes it very, very pertinent to our everyday life and to the care of our own souls. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. And faith to receive your word now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. First John, chapter 1. Today we'll just look at the first four verses, and they're dense. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father 
and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete and so I hope in the midst of all that um, verbiage there I hope you get a sense for the urgency of what John is pleading here. He wants a hearing in our lives. He is urging us, trust me, I was there. I know Jesus. Trust me to teach you the truth about him. Okay. And that's really what's before us today. Will we trust what John teaches us about Jesus to be true? Now, all that I just read to you, as John wrote it, is one long, tangledy sentence. Your English professor would not be happy with you if you wrote that way. But he's writing in Greek, and evidently that's okay. So let's see if we can untangle this one long sentence a little bit as we walk through it, starting at the very first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So he starts out, he's telling them something, not something new, okay? This is something that they've been taught from the beginning, something unchanging, something historic, something apostolic. Okay? He is going old school here. Not something new. This is not new ideas about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Okay? The false teachers were presenting new stuff. This is the old stuff. Um, he's writing what they've always been taught from the beginning. And he may have here in mind as well something even farther back um, in his mind. Because the way John starts this letter, it's very similar in some ways to the way he starts the Gospel of John with a really heavy expression of who Jesus is. This is how he starts the Gospel of John. Listen for a similarity here. In the beginning was the Word, who is Jesus? And the Word was with God and the word was God. So John may also have in mind here Jesus' eternal preexistence with the Father as the Son of God and the Word of God. And both of those titles John uses of Jesus in these opening few, few verses. Um, but clearly here, with both of these ideas, he's going old school. This is a tried and true message about the eternal one, the very Son of God. Okay. Again, in those early verses, John, you see, is also writing in verses 1 and 2 from a place of an eyewitness, right? One who saw Jesus, one who heard him teach in person, even touched him, um, and he says it over and over. The language is all over this. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. We've seen it. It was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. It's as though he's saying to us, I am not making this up. I was there. It's true. Okay? And it's almost, he's almost using here some legal language that you would use as a witness in a court. He's, so he's building a case so that they and we will trust what he's saying to be true. This is truth about who Jesus really is. 
not some novel new idea. Um, so that's the good news. What we're going to learn about Jesus from the book of 1 John is not new stuff, okay? It's, it's not stuff that I am making up. This is not a series of what Larry thinks about Jesus, okay? That's not what this is about. This is about what John saw, heard, touched, experienced, and wrote down for us so that we could truly know who Jesus really was and is. That's why, he's, that's why he is trotting out his credentials here. Okay. So the question for us this morning is, uh, will you trust what John says about Jesus? Will you believe this eyewitness account that it's true? Okay. Will you trust it so much that you'll follow what he says? Again, that's why he's trotting out his credentials here. He wants them and he wants us to trust what he says about Jesus and what it means for us to follow him as a, as a Christ follower. Right? Will you trust him? Would you today draw a line in the sand and say, I will come expecting to, to learn truth about Jesus and follow it? And then this, this is his opening salvo about Jesus. Again, it's embedded in those first two verses. He says he's from the beginning. He's eternal. He was with the Father before he was seen and heard and touched on the earth, verse 3 will say. He uses the same kind of language of the eternality of Jesus in the second chapter. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And you skip down to verse 14 there. I write to you, fathers, he says the same thing. Because you know him who is from the beginning. John, who also wrote down the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible, records similar ideas there where Jesus says of himself at the very end of the book, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he's eternal. This is the eternal one. This is the one who was from the beginning. Now he also calls him a, a number of terms in this kind of opening salvo about Jesus. He says he's, he's the word of life. He's the life. He's eternal life, he says. And John writes about Jesus and eternal life elsewhere in his gospel. So chapter 17 Jesus himself says in John, when John's gospel, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. A couple chapters earlier, John 14, 6, famously, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So by this eternal one, who is eternal life, by Jesus alone, we can know the Father. And John's going to refer to Jesus in the third verse here in, as God's Son. He calls him the Son of the Father. At the end of that verse, you see, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. He's presenting Jesus as the very Son of God, the eternal one who gives life, who is eternal life, who is God's Son. And there he says, He's the Christ. He's the Messiah as well. But central to all of this kind of dense teaching about who Jesus is is the idea 
that Jesus showed up, okay? That he came here on earth amongst us. It says he was made manifest. That's what he means. He showed up. He was seen. He was heard. He was touched by ordinary men and women. Uh, the big word for that is he became incarnate, the incarnation. He took on human flesh and became one of us and entered our world. This is how John introduced us to Jesus in, in his gospel. He says, writing about Jesus as the word of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So incarnation, he put on flesh, came into our world to rescue us. Um, similarly, to help us think about it, in September of 1940, there's a man named Witold Pileski, excuse me, Pileski. He was a Polish army captain and he did something that was unthinkable. He snuck into Auschwitz the concentration, the Nazi concentration and death camp. Um, he snuck into Auschwitz. Pilecki knew that something was terribly wrong with the concentration camp and as a committed Christian, Polish patriot, he couldn't sit by and watch. So he wanted to get information on the horrors of Auschwitz, but he knew the only place he could do that was from the inside. So his superiors approved a daring plan they provided a false identity card with a Jewish name and Pilecki allowed the Germans to arrest him during a routine Warsaw Street Roundup and Pilecki was sent to Auschwitz and assigned inmate number 4859. Pilecki was a husband and a father of two. And later he would say, I bade farewell to everything I had known on this earth. And he became just like any other prisoner. He was despised, he was beaten, he was threatened with death. And from inside the camp, he wrote, the game I was now playing at Auschwitz was dangerous. In fact, I had gone far beyond what people in the real world would consider dangerous. But beginning in 1941, prisoner number 4859 started working on his dangerous mission. He organized the inmates into resistance units, boosting morale and documenting war crimes. Pilecki used couriers to smuggle out detailed reports on the atrocities. By 1942, he had also helped organize a secret radio station using scrap parts. The information he supplied from inside the camp provided Western allies and with key intelligence information about Auschwitz. In the spring of 1943, Pilecki joined the camp bakery where he was able to overpower a guard and escape. Once free, he finished his report, estimating that around 2 million souls had been killed at Auschwitz. And when the reports reached London, officials thought he was exaggerating. But of course, today we know that he was right. Here's how a contemporary Jewish journal summarized Pilecki's life. Once he set his mind to the good, he never wavered, never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. He went inside. He became one of them in order to rescue them. And there's a sense in which that's very much like what Jesus did. He became one of us. He went into a place racked with sin, not just to risk his life, but to give his life there, here, in our world, in order to rescue us. 
So John starts his letter with this really dense, powerful portrait of the internal, life-giving, incarnate Jesus. He's from the beginning. He's the one who was with the Father and now is the life made manifest, seen, heard, and touched, the eternal life, the Son of the Father, Jesus the Christ. And the reason he did this, it was intended to safeguard the churches from those who were denying this very teaching about Jesus, okay? And John writes explicitly and strongly against this. You, you heard it already from chapter two. He said, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And chapter four, he's gonna say something similar. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In his second letter, 2 John, he's going to say, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. John says, But I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. And I am giving you eyewitness testimony as to who Jesus truly is to counter this teaching that is in the spirit of the Antichrist. So again, the question is, do you believe who John says Jesus is? You may still have questions about it, and that's fine. We welcome questions. The purpose of 1 John is to help us answer our questions about who Jesus is. And so John is declaring all of these things about Jesus for a purpose. And he says that purpose in verse 3. Look, at, look there with me. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. So he wants us to know who Jesus truly is so we can have fellowship with him. That is, we can have true fellowship with one another. And it's helpful to think about what, what language he's using here. When he says fellowship, he's using uh, a word that's kind of crept even into church vocabulary today. It's the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that word before. Koinonia. It means fellowship. Um, you know, there used to be a koinonia class in the church that we were at when we were in Texas. Um, it's been used to name coffee shops and youth groups and worship bands and retreats and summer camps. It was even the winning word at the Scripps National Spelling Bee Championships this year, koinonia. Uh, you spell it with a K, in case you're wondering. No Y. So you can look it up later. But it means fellowship. But it means a lot more than fellowship as we often use it. You're having coffee and donuts out in the lobby and they say, oh, what were you doing? I was just fellowshipping with some people, you know. You have some guys over to watch the game. You're going to do, cook a few brats on the grill. What are you doing? Oh, we're just fellowshipping. You know, that's all fine and good. But John has something much, much richer in mind that he is inviting us into um, when he uses this language of koinonia. It's about relationship. It's about partnership. It's about sharing. 
It's what we mean when we say we're in community or we're doing life together. Um, Professor Douglas Wilson puts it this way. He says, this Greek word koinonia is usually translated as fellowship, which is good enough. But over time, the word has lost some of its texture and depth for us in the modern church. We moderns think that fellowship is the coffee and donut time after the main service where we all chat each other up a bit and then head out for the parking lot. But the word koinonia involves much more than just being friendly for 20 minutes once a week. The word, as it is used of Christians in the New Testament, involves communion, identification, union, reciprocity, interdwelling. As Christians, we are called to eat together and talk and give and sacrifice precisely because we are members of one another, precisely because we are to have koinonia, we're to have true fellowship. See, this is the life, this is the church you always wanted, right? Where you have real friends sharing in need and plenty, partnering in mission and purpose. Koinonia is real relationship, real sharing, real partnership together as God's people. And because we're made for this by God, if we don't experience it, we make up substitutes. We try to find it on our own, and those substitutes don't satisfy deep down and in here. You know, for instance, researchers have found that the more people use Facebook, the less healthy they are and the less satisfied they are with their lives. It's, it's crazy research. The study monitored mental health and social lives of over 5,000 adults for a couple of years, 2013, 2015. And the findings were using Facebook was tightly linked to compromised social, physical, and psychological health. Using Facebook could kill you, okay? It's a little hyperbole there. But it does say it negatively affects relationships. It's fascinating. They did another study um, focusing on, on young people. There were actually two studies done last year of a couple thousand um, American uh, teenagers. And they found that it exacerbated feelings of anxiety and inadequacy. It increased feelings of isolation why would online social activity be so damaging to health and well-being? One researcher put it this way. He said, the bottom line is that replacing in-person interactions with online contact can be a threat to your mental health. And then he added, what people really need is real friendships and real interactions. That's what he means when he says koinonia. When he says, I want, I want you to think and believe rightly about Jesus so you can have real relationships together and fellowship. We need, we were made for koinonia. One of the first descriptions of the Christian church is in Acts chapter 2. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. It's that same word, koinonia. They're devoted to loving each other that way to the breaking of bread, and to, to the prayers. Um, scripture describes it all over the place, what this fellowship's supposed to be like. First Corinthians, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Peter says, above all, 
Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And he goes on and describes how we are to use our gifts. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. It's how we're supposed to love each other. And this is what John's inviting us into. In the second century, the second century, he lived after 150 AD. There was a man named Tertullian. And uh, this is how he described Christian fellowship. He said, it's our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us or marks us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Look how they are prepared even to die for one another. So from the beginning, this koinonia, this fellowship, is what John is writing to protect and to invite us into. And if that's not enticing enough for you, if that doesn't sound fabulous to you, he adds this. Look at the back end of verse 3. He says, we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed... Our fellowship, there's that word again, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's declaring and teaching the truth about who Jesus is so that we could have not only fellowship with God's people, but we could have fellowship with God himself. We are invited to experience that same level of koinonia that the Father has with the Son and has had perfectly for all eternity. Okay? We are invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. Um, no one I know writes about this more compellingly than Professor Michael Reeves. Um, he wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity. He says the Father sent his son to make himself known. Meaning not that he simply wanted to download some information about himself, but the love the father eternally had for the son might be in those who believe in him and that we might enjoy the son as the father always has. Here then is a salvation no single person God could offer even if they wanted to. The father so delights in his eternal love for the son that he desires to share it with all who will believe. Ultimately, the Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship with all who believe. Okay, we're invited into the way that the Father loves his Son to coin a neo with the Father and the Son. And all of this is based on what he's teaching us about Jesus, Right? that he's from the beginning. He's the one who was with the Father and now is the life made manifest. He was seen, he was heard, he was touched. He's the eternal life, the son of the Father. He's Jesus the Christ. Okay. Pastor John Piper says, in order to experience fellowship with his readers, John tells them what he believes about Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no significant fellowship among people who do not share the same true view of Jesus Christ. Shared doctrine, shared belief about Jesus is the basis of Christian fellowship. See, to commune with Jesus, you have to know the truth about who Jesus really is. 
So um, Jamie Smith writes in one of his books, he recounts a story that's told about um, a failed 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeanette. Um, these guys based their entire um, trip um, to the pole, which was unknown territory at that certain time, on a mistaken map. Um, there was a map that was drawn up by Dr. August Heinrich Peterman, and he suggested that there was a thermometric gateway through the ice that opened up into open water at the pole. Open water at the pole. Okay, we know better, right? It's ice at the pole, but that's what the map showed. And so um, as perilous ice quickly surrounded the ship, Sides recounts that the team had to shed its organizing ideas in all their unfounded romance and replace them with a reckon, reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. It's ice, people, okay? It's not open water, no matter what the map says. And then um, Dr. Smith says, our culture often sells us faulty, fantastical maps of the good life that paint alluring pictures that draw us toward them. And all too often, we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sheet hoisted, and we do so without thinking because these maps work on our imagination, not our intellect, and it's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. John is pleading with us in these opening verses of 1 John to let him be our guide to a true and right understanding of who Jesus really is to lay aside what we think and all the modern ideas and listen to him and follow his map he is laying out in this letter that we call 1 John. And he says if, if we'll do that, it will bring him as a shepherd of souls that he was. It'd bring him great joy. That's how our passage ends, verse four. It just says we are writing these things so that our joy will be complete. He says the same thing in the third letter, third John. He says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So this morning, I am preaching first John for my joy, okay? That I would get to see you walking in the truth of how, who Jesus really is, that you cling to that truth. And as you truly know him, that you truly in, enter into koinonia with us here and with God the Father and his Son, you'd know God that intimately. Will you believe John's eyewitness testimony about Jesus? and all it means for you. Would you draw that line in the sand today and say, yes, this is eyewitness testimony from a trustworthy source, I'm in. I am in. Now, throughout history, one way that Christians have confessed their faith and protected their faith is through various creeds that were written. Uh, there'd be some 
heretical, troubling teaching, often about Jesus, and the scholars would get together and they would mine the scriptures and they would debate and they would write and they would rewrite and they would craft these statements called creeds. One was written long, long ago in the year 325 in a place called Nicaea. And so we call it now the Nicene Creed. And it, it's a lengthy statement, the early parts, about what Christians truly believe about who Jesus is. And so this morning is an expression of our faith, of who Jesus truly is. I'd like for us to recite the early parts of this creed together to confess our faith these first stanzas of the Nicene Creed that focus on the person and work of Jesus. So, <clears throat> you don't have to know it from memory. It's on the screen. And I'd like to invite you to stand with me and, and read this creed with me as a way of confessing our faith in Jesus. This could be the first time you've ever done this. Not recite the Nicene Creed, but the first time you've ever actively professed faith in Jesus and I, I want to extend that invitation to you it's a beautiful time to say yeah I believe in Jesus I trust Jesus I want to follow Jesus so let's confess our faith together we believe in one God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen and amen.